Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's somewhere in between a radio zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome to a satisfying conclusion. It's issue 46, the Michael Cassett interview, part four. It's always hard to summarize or come to a conclusion with an interview because you know that that person's life is in progress. There's more to come and there's just no way that you can cover everything and give it a wonderful, satisfying story arc the way that novels do. Nevertheless, we try to find some happy way of wrapping up the story of Michael Cassett's career by finishing his work at 90210 and then discussing some work that he did with Carl Schaefer. Why don't I just let you hear it for yourself? I spent what I said was 10 months in front of, in the, in the room, in front of whiteboards. Mm. I became the scribe. You write that down? The, the clockmaker. Yes, <laughs> moving, you know, where's the story? So a lot of whatever was plotted in there, um, I had a, a big say in it. So Michael, what do you think? I ran into her a couple years later. She said, oh yes, um, your name is still frequently mentioned around uh, the 90210 offices. It's <laughs> anytime anybody pitches a line of dialogue or writes something that's too dark or ironic, they say, oh, that's a Michael Cassett line. That's not gonna, <laughs> that's not gonna work here. Those are the, my, Heather's favorite lines. <laughs> right. <laughs> what an odd thing to say. So, I mean, yeah, it was, it was not my, uh, not my cup of tea in terms of just how they tell stories. I mean, and don't take this as a criticism of that type of storytelling because the people who do it are very canny. John Eisendrath is a very, very smart guy. That's sweet of you to say. He knew better what he was doing and why than I could ever have done it. I mean, he did it once and it's true. A show like that and those shows are all about terrible things almost happening to beautiful people. That was close. That's <laughs> that's the TV soap world. So yeah, that's that's the big anomaly. And I realized at that point that that world was not for me. You already mentioned Erie, Indiana um, is another one of, of my faves. Uh, did you get to work with Joe Dante on that? Oh, yes. Yeah, Joe was, uh, Joe had done the pilot with Carl Schaefer yeah. and Jose Rivera. And I was finishing up, I was actually stuck on WLU. How do I get out of here? When Erie got going. Okay. We had premiered, oh, it was another great show, fun to work on. We had premiered and then been on the air and then the Gulf War broke out. And so we were like, we were on for six weeks and then off for six weeks and then came back late. And so the network hadn't made a decision on what to do because they were, we were still airing and we were all still under contract. I guess now all we can do is wait. So I knew of Erie. I had read Carl's uh, and Jose's first couple of scripts just thought it was fantastic i mean one was the retainer since your teeth refuse to behave i have designed for you something very special a new radical experimental prototypical one-of-a-kind retainer Thank <laughs> you. 
isn't going to hurt a bit. <laughs> the other one is foreverware. Item. A bizarre housewife cult in town has been sealing up their kids in giant rubber kitchenware so they don't age. And mm. I, I thought they were great, but I was I was unable to do anything. And it was just really, and then they canceled WLU. I was sitting around as writers do at that point going, well, I've just been screwed over. What do I do now? Also, we were in the process of rebuilding our house. So I was literally stuck here with no job and a house that was in the middle of a massive remodeling. Don't mind us, you keep working. So I was not in a good mood. (laughs) Suddenly out of the blue, I mean, Erie was almost on the air. I get a call from Carl asking me what I'm doing. And it turned out that he had a writer producer named Gary Markowitz. Another writer and producer with a long and varied career. Gary Markowitz got started in 1975, writing for shows like The Texas Wheelers, Phyllis and When Things Were Rotten. Over the years Gary began to get more varied work, including a stint on MASH, and work on shows like ALF, the 1990 Elvis TV series, and Fast Track. Gary is probably best known for the TV movie Running Wild, which he wrote and produced, and for writing the MASH episode George which was the first time a gay character appeared on American television in a sitcom. Who had uh, been working on it for four or five months, but Markowitz had a pilot that he'd done the previous year for NBC, and NBC had suddenly, in their chaos, picked it out of the pile and said, we're producing this, and they'd yanked him out of the show because it was a prior commitment, and so Carl suddenly had an opening. Room for one more? Oddly enough, I also had, at the same time, an offer from another show, a line producer, a friend of mine named Scott Brazil, who I'd worked with on WLU and TV 101. In addition to those credits, Scott Brazil's career goes back to the early 80s, where he first started working on the TV movie Thornwell. His credits include producing Hill Street Blues, Space Rangers, and LA Doctors. Unfortunately, Scott passed away in 2006 while producing The Shield. Uh, he wanted me to go to work on I think called Jack's Place. Hi. I'm looking for Jack Evans. Uh, is he expecting you? No, it's a surprise. Okay, I'll, I'll get him. Do you want something to, to drink or? No, thank you. But leave the fly. And funny, it was an hour long show for ABC, kind of about a nightclub. And then there was Eerie, but I had seen Eerie, you know, seen the scripts, and I just knew I said, this is this is me. Right. So I turned down this much more lucrative one-hour thing, higher title, just to go to work on Eerie. <laughs> in that sense, great, because Jack's Place came on and was gone in six episodes. You have chosen wise. It's Eerie. Uh, <laughs> we did 18, I think. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were renewed. And yes, Joe Dante was there. I worked with Joe Dante. I worked with uh, Ken Quapis, who became a good friend. A director producer and writer, Ken Kwapis has had a long and varied career, beginning in 1983 on the CBS Afternoon Playhouse. After that, Ken worked on shows like Amazing Stories, The Larry Sanders Show, Freaks and Geeks, ER, Malcolm in the Middle, and also worked on movies like Follow That Bird, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, A Walk in the Woods, and the just-announced Sisterhood Everlasting. Ken is also in pre-production on a film about the legendary outsider rock band, the Shags. A great director. We had a ton of fun doing Tornado Days. Mister, are you all right? Where are we? Erie, Indiana. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
My last navigational check showed me blowing up Highway 3 out of Muncie. Weren't you boys at the picnic? What are you trying to do? Make them mad? Make who mad? Old Bob. Worked with Bob Balbin, uh, who's uh, directed one of the episodes. It just, it was, and you know, working with Jose and Matt Dearborn, an old, old friend of mine. An old friend indeed. Michael and Matt Dearborn both worked on TV 101 and WIOU together as writers, and Matt also worked on Parker Lewis Cunt Lose, Strange Luck and Sliders, before settling into a fairly long career working in children's television. A director and a producer as well, Matt is still working, and just had a new documentary come out this year, Until the Wheels Come Off, about cyclist John Tarleton as he enters his second attempt at completing the race across America. I'm one of the funnier people I've ever met in my life, and yeah, it just almost every episode was just great. There were a couple of episodes we left in the locker room there that that would have been some. We had some concept about a you know haunted you know gingerbread man that we spent two days on. I'd never have laughed so hard in my life is developing that that episode, and we could just never get anybody to go for it. Better luck next time. <laughs> uh, but yes, it was the you know I'm a small town guy, and so in West, so running about tornadoes and the local lodge. Uh, all that kind of stuff was just right up my alley. I never, that was as much fun as writing Matt. Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, everything. And I knew the day that ended that I would be damn lucky to ever have something that fun again. There is such a tone to that show that um, I don't know if it's really ever been captured again. Because it's like, you know, it, it's it's not exactly only for kids, but it's not exactly only for adults no. either. And like it treats kids very like straightforward like it's not kind of condescending uh but it's also kind right. of like uh i i've never seen anything else that quite walks this line before and i think that might be why it sticks out i've never seen anything like this way it got conceived was that carl schaefer had wanted to do something about a basically young tom sawyer So, you know, this smart ass kid in a ridiculous town and Jose Rivera had wanted to do something about it, like a Twilight Zone aimed at a younger audience. And someone had put the two of them together and they had merged it and blended it and became out of it. combination. And, you know, Tom Sawyer was always a fairly knowledgeable young, uh, mm -hmm. young man. And if you catch my drift, and getting a director like Joe Dante, who was so good at, at that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, just kind of set the tone. It's like, yes, there were going to be ridiculous over the top things, but you're going to treat them like they're not just serious, but that you're going to have an attitude about them. Hip, hip, hip. Simon was the most fun to write for me because he was just kind of clueless, but the truth speaker. Right. You know, Marshall would be saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this. And, you know, Simon would be, yes, but what about, you know, isn't that Amelia Earhart? You know, like <laughs> old Bob in particular. He likes to collect things. I think he picked up Amelia Earhart. Sucked her right out of the Pacific. Simon, remember that old Lockheed Electra they found in Deadwood Park? Amelia Earhart's plane. You don't suppose she's that old lady we always see jogging? It's like, no, that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> or is it? I mean, so there was just... 
Yeah, it was, it was fun. I realized it was all 30 years ago uh, that the show was being developed. Where does the time go? What's interesting is that so much of uh, um, Joe Dante's work and Max Headroom uh, uh, overwhelmed me as a child in terms of my imagination. And I realized that you were kind of like the connecting thread between his worlds and, and Max Headroom. <laughs> Well, uh, I am the person who went from one to the other, and I I would say that uh, what made me suited for Max is what made me suited for Erie. I mean, they were absolutely my sense of storytelling and uh, and especially dialogue and, and character, just how they would react to things and, you know, what what fun they would try to have in what could be dire circumstances. Yeah, I suppose, in a, in essence... I'm the, you know, the, the common voice there. Jump ahead 20 years to Z Nation. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of that, mm -hmm. but it's very much, very, I mean, Doc is me, <laughs> uh, very much that tone, mm -hmm. allowing for the fact that we were rarely able to produce the things we actually wanted because we had no money. How are you broke on payday? The, the concepts for a lot of Z Nation episodes were were better than the results. Uh, although I do think we had some really good episodes. Carl Schaffer from Erie, Indiana created Z Nation and executive produced the show with Michael Cassett. Uh, Strange Luck. I don't know if you ever saw that, but that's it's another show that had uh, certainly a similar, right. similar tone. I was gonna ask you why I can't get that yeah. anywhere. <laughs> and I am horrified to admit that I think I finally, I had a collection of VHS tapes and I finally threw just because you know they're not playing very well anymore, right? <laughs> so I don't know, and Carl doesn't know where it is either. I mean, it, the, and that would be a show that, that's a show not to go back, but someone should revive that. I mean, that had a just a genius idea, and far more autobiographical than most TV shows. I mean, Carl Schaefer grew up. He is Chance Harper. He is a guy who's had strange luck. People say I'm lucky. Weird chains of great luck, and then weird, terrible, horrible things, and you know, more than any mere mortal should, <laughs> certainly far more than me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm from the middle of the country, the middle class, I mean, literally in the middle, my hometown literally sits on the 45th parallel. We have a little plaque that the shop teacher and I, shop teacher in high school built. Little does Michael know that Salem, Oregon, where Austin is located, is on the 45th parallel too. To say you're right here, you're midway between the equator and the North Pole. <laughs> But Carl, who looks exactly like some Midwestern kid, has had these, you know, crime and, and sadness, and yet strange early success. And, you know, he's been entrepreneurial and done all these things. So a lot of that appeared in uh, Strange Luck, and we were able to get pieces of it. There, you know, it's the direct descendant of, of Erie in many ways. not quite as light or Dante-esque, um, but it could have been. And, you know, I think that's, it's certainly on that, you know, on that spectrum. Like a lot of things that I loved, I, I got into Strange Luck. I was like, ah, oh, this is the show for me. And then it disappeared. Well. Vanished without a trace. And then of course I've had trouble finding it. And so I keep waiting yeah. for the, uh, the reissue day where suddenly there's a legitimate DVD. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I really wish there could. I don't know what it was. The same way that Max was unavailable for a long time because there was a giant mm -hmm. rights 
argument between chrysalis and who knows who knows who right it's still the issue is still nebulous <laughs> not clear maybe no one knows and it's same thing with strange like it was partly fox um also though new world new world tv and they went out of business so where are their assets and who controls them and who yeah some some enterprising dvd company could probably do it like was it shout factory they were able to get the max headroom stuff together about 10 years ago for the first time ever on dvd max headroom max headroom the complete series what kind of sh sh show is this anyway yeah. um they should do strange luck are you out there shout factory you should do it are you listening um <laughs> and it's too bad we also i mean we were doing well enough we there were problems uh, internal problems, cast problems and issues that made it just impossible for anybody to want to go ahead with it. Because we were the, we actually had the best numbers running next to X-Files of any of the Fox shows of the late 1990s. Edwards, ratings analysis, please. Overnight low at 115 million, high at 236 million. Projections are excellent. We're still top network. Yeah. And easily, were, they were justified in wanting to do a, a season two, but for example, I was offered the chance to work on season two, and I said, I'm not working on this thing again. Mm -hmm. Not unless you make some other changes. So. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Bummer. That's why, I dis that's why I disappeared. Vanished. Well, so my favorite credit that I found when I was searching around online about you is uh, you uh, are listed as space historian in uh, the documentary series The Universe. Um, and this leads to your nonfiction writing Yes. career uh and, and and you know some part of me when i was growing up found both science fiction and nasa equally interesting and so i was wondering was this similar to your parallel interests in science fiction and, and space absolutely to me spaceflight and science fiction were the same thing two sides of the same coin especially when i was about 11 years old i was reading red planet by robert a heinlein and watching the first gemini missions and it was just they always marched you know in tandem, my view of science fiction has obviously expanded and, and gone beyond. It's not just rockets and spaceships, but the interest in that the nonfiction world has persisted. I mean, I must know a hundred astronauts, um, and cool. I've written autobiographies of two of them, and then a biography of a guy who. Well, the book is the astronaut maker. Is a guy who. Oh yeah, uh, George Abbey. Yeah, George Abbey. Yeah. And so I'm still in touch with that world very much. He's right there in the inner circle. I have another project that's kind of cooking that is space related as well. So I haven't given that up at all. And in terms of the actual objective success of what I've done, those space books are the, the, the Deke Slayton book is the most successful thing I've ever done. It's still in print 25 years later. I think that's pretty good. And still, I still get emails about it. And it's just fun getting to know those, those people and, and, Partly it was just curiosity uh, or nosiness is you just look at it and say, what's really going on here? And that was mm -hmm. what drove me to uh, get to work with those particular people. I, I was going to ask, but it seems like you've answered it, that you actually know a fair number of astronauts because the story of George Abbey seems a little obscure. I, I even kind of had to look it up. And so I just oh, wanted, yeah. I wanted to make sure, like, yeah, how did you get onto this? Actually, the title I wanted to use for the book was unidentified NASA official. That's great. <laughs> what he was in the press. He was not someone who was ever forward or out there. He was the obscure bureaucrat who, as is often the case with obscure bureaucrats or the deep state for you QAnon 
folks out there um, who really run things. Mm-hmm. Now we're through the looking glass here, people. And this is a guy who had had this career. He had been an Air Force pilot and wanted to be a space traveler himself, had experience as an engineer working on one of the first American human spaceflight programs, the dinosaur space plane, which was in existence the same time as it's literally started the same few months as the Mercury program. Just it, it never went anywhere. And George wound up not by his choice necessarily, but being dragged into Apollo as an engineer. And then he just rose through that system. He was everywhere. He was with the Apollo one astronauts the night before they died in the fire. He was here, he was there, you know, doing and and involved in all these things. And then in the mid nineties, suddenly he was in charge of, he was the gatekeeper to space. Who who got to fly in the space shuttle? Who got selected as an astronaut? He was the one making all those decisions for, certainly for about 15 years, just directly. And then indirectly, he later wound up was running the Johnson Space Center after having been at NASA headquarters as the deputy to the administrator. He had like a 37-year career right right at the cutting edge of NASA spaceflight. And to me, he was just somebody who absolutely had a, a story to be told even though nobody knew who he was. Who might you be? Yes, I got that. Yeah, I mean, it's an astonishing book and it's it's only a couple years old too. Uh, so like, I mean, I, I think that- Yeah, uh, they came out in 2018. Yeah, I think for people who are like, you know, mostly remember you from 80s television, like you have all these novels, you have all this like nonfiction work under your belt. Uh, there's a whole other side to Michael Cassett that maybe people aren't even familiar with that is equally fascinating. Well, thank you. And that's, I mean- I've confessed for years that, you know, if I'd concentrated on one thing, it would probably would have been better for my overall standing. But I've always, as I think I said earlier, it's always been three fronts for me. It's always been fiction. In fact, I spent the plague year last year writing a new novel, which I'm now kind of polishing and editing and hope to submit here we should have you back when the book's oh, published. Very exciting. Yeah. Then the television, primarily fiction. Yeah, and and then the the nonfiction, most of it dealing with space flight. But I have an, an, another nonfiction book I want to do as well. It has nothing to do with anything like that. So, uh, you know, it's it's career ADHD, I guess, uh, or just you know follow your interests. You just heard part four of our conversation with Michael Cassett, writer, science fiction, television producer, and, of course, a person who worked on Max Headroom. Something I'm very fond of. Why not visit the show notes on this particular episode between radiozine.com and you'll find a video of this conversation. Thank you. And that's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between, a radio zine, the Michael Cassett interview, part four, issue 46, contained the Michael Cassett interview, part four, written by Heather Zykowski and Austin Rich, and featuring a conversation with Michael Cassett. Seriously, if you can get me a DVD of Strange Luck, I will happily purchase it. I will happily purchase it from you. No questions asked, 
though I'm sure it will lead to some horrible chance circumstances for me in the immediate future. I think it might be worth it. I think I liked that show quite a bit. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story, music, or poetry that you would like to send in or read, or you just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com? That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you.